Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to Holistic Heroes here on Salam. My special guest today is Sister, ba is Sister Fatima Barakatullah. She is an author and an NHS chaplain and a, a budding scholar, mashallah. Alhamdulillah. And we've known each other a few years. Walaikum Salam. Yes, we have, and we, we keep bumping into each other. And uh, I feel like we've always wanted to chat but we've never quite had the chance to have the sort of chat we probably should have had what? a long time ago. You are so right. I think we've got a good two hour session over, over tea and cakes. We're gonna do some of it today, hopefully. Um, because we, you know, we've met a few times. I, I get the feeling, didn't I meet you with IERA when I was on a course when my kids were small? From what I remember, we've met uh, at Conference. These big women's events. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, 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 it was a big conference. And I was sitting with your daughters, and yeah. Yeah, I remember that. We met at, at a wedding as well. Do you remember? Yeah, of course. We were all yeah. dressed up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we, 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 our paths have crossed a few times. And actually, we grew up in the same part of North London because you're a Finchley girl. Yes. So you were, were you, do you remember being under Thatcher's Britain? Yeah, I'm, going, I'm, I've actually met Margaret Thatcher. Really? As a as a child, yeah. I met her. We she had left she was not the Prime Minister anymore. She got kicked out. <laughs> she was still an MP, I believe. And uh, she came to visit our um some thing that we were doing at school and she actually sat next to me and I was making a birdhouse mm. woodwork, right? And she sat next to me and, and she just said something for the camera and you know. Yeah, so I've actually met her. <laughs> I met Margaret Thatcher when I was in my 30s and it was, uh, it was uh, during a general election on a boat hired by ITV, I think, for their general election, or Channel 4, for their election um, results kind of evening. And she walked past and I'd always promised myself I'd kick her up the backside. <laughs> but you know what, she was so old and I thought, you can't. I thought, just for the minors, and I thought, you can't. Yeah, I, I wasn't really aware of her politics, to be honest. I, I just grew up seeing her on the television all the time and I actually used to think used to get mixed up between her and the Queen <laughs> I just remember that <laughs> and then um, you know as I got older and more conscious of that I started noticing the differences between the different parties and different areas of London because actually I grew up in Hackney before oh, Finchley okay which is like the opposite right <laughs> because Hackney was very much a labor kind of uh, place super right? diverse yeah super diverse our teachers used to like sing "Free Nelson Mandela." Right? I, just, I remember that distinctly. You know when he when he was released, and we literally had an Definitely assembly not Thatcher's song. with people with the teachers dancing. Like, right? ah, wow! These are the sort of Amazing. people we grew up with until I was about eleven, and then we moved to Finchley. Yeah, and that was like completely different for me um, because Hackney was a place where there's a lot of diversity where I'd never really thought twice about being a Muslim. Yeah, well, I had, but not. it wasn't really out of place to be a Muslim in Hackney and, you know, to grow up in that environment. And our teachers were very uh, supportive, you know. There, there wasn't that kind of... There might have been racism on the streets, but I didn't experience racism from my teachers at all. They were so, like, encouraging, supportive and sort of celebrating mm. of our cultures. Back in the day, the dreamy days... Right. But then when we moved to Finchley, mm. when I was 11, I was like, there were hardly any people of colour, you know, even in, in, in our area and in our school. And that's not, not, not an issue, but except that because of that, I think I like really stood out. And then I did start experiencing some, you know, racism at school. Um, what kind of things? Well, I just distinctly remember... Um, what year are we talking, by the way? We're talking year six. Uh, okay. And year yeah. 1990... Uh, nine, 1990, I think. Okay. Around 1990, yeah. And uh, so I, I just distinctly remember it taking quite a long time for people to want to talk to me. Mm. <laughs> and I remember, like, the early playtimes in my mm. primary school in uh, Finchley... Uh, a Jewish girl came and sat next to me in the playground and um, she said, hi, uh, do you mind if I sit with you? I said, oh, of course not. And she she said, you know, um, uh, it, she just, she kind of conveyed to me that she really appreciated that I was from a different religion and 
she said, you know, when, when she first came to the school, she was also like treated differently, you know. Mm. Uh, but believe it or not, within a matter of days or weeks, once people get to know you, you know, and see that you're a normal person, you're funny. I was wearing the hijab, I should add. Yeah, so I was wearing hijab from like maybe the age of nine or ten. So what's interesting about that, I think, is that hijab was a kind of marker of difference, even though it just it wasn't like a beanie. Kids naturally no. reacted strangely to it because it wouldn't have been about Islam necessarily in the 90, in 1990, would it? Was yeah. it just another way of being different? I think it was different. I remember like in secondary school, <clears throat> I went to Queen Elizabeth's Girls School. Yeah. Oh, boo. Okay. Another North London thing. Oh, it's Coptor. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, which I loved. I loved my school. Uh, but I do remember once um, one of the girls in my class, when I visited her, her house, uh, or I was, we were passing by and we popped in, and um, she said to me privately, you know, oh, my mum told me I shouldn't hang out with people like you, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because you're trouble or something like that. And I just thought, God, you know, that's like, it was a bit of a shock to me that somebody would obviously within a few minutes have have, uh, made a decision about me, right? But having said that, most of my friends, and I'm talking about white girls, right? Because most people in Barnet Mm -hmm. were white at that time. Um, Most of them, their mums were so happy if they knew I was going out with them. Because they knew there would be no alcohol, mm. <laughs> there'd be no boys, <laughs> there'd be no, you know, messing around. It would be good, clean fun, right? So um, uh, mm. so there's both sides, right? So you were the friend the mums wanted yeah. and the girls didn't? The girls did. Oh. They, they, they actually loved being with me, I'm telling mm. you. Because I think what was happening is for teenage girls, I think often they were propelled into certain things before mm. they were really ready to be, mm. you know? And there were Kinda pressures like, on them. It, then it was like a sort of showing off. I remember we had a girl called Katie Roberts exactly. in my school and she was going out with guys with flash cars exactly, at yeah. 15 and everybody wanted to be her, but nobody but was... quite ready. Mm. And also, I think what happened was, um, you know, it was like that transition between childhood and adulthood. Mm. And there's a part of you that wants to keep that fun innocence and you know uh, without the complication of the the boys and the whatever right in them i mean mm-hmm. and and i think they expressed that with me you know so like one of my friends i remember <clears throat> at school she would kind of and a few of them actually they would sort of see me as the person who they could come to when things in that culture were Got not going intense yeah mm. so when they were for example being made fun of for the way they they looked Believe it or not, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be like, I think I can be open with you, right? You can. So we're just having a chat. So, uh, for example, you know, one of my friends, she was being made fun of for being flat chested. Yeah. Right. Um, another friend, you know, because she wasn't willing to mm. go past a certain point with boys, mm. she was called frigid. Mm. Right. And they would confide in me and cry to me in private. Right. Mm. So I feel like I've seen a side of Britain, mm. right, that people don't usually get to see and people assume doesn't exist. Now, that's interesting because I'm presuming what you're talking about here is actually the vulnerability of young women, which yeah. is no longer allowed because, yeah. again, you know, this idea of, of freedom is you want that freedom. You've got that freedom. Go for that freedom. But what about the insecurity? What about the being preyed upon? What about the yeah. need to just uh, be, be discover themselves as, as young people and be left alone at that awkward period of life? And you experience that from the other side where girls were come and express that to you yeah and in fact um a few of them you know would say to me that you know we really love being able to to have you as a friend you know because Mm. they knew that i wasn't part of that culture fully although i was you know obviously i was into the similar things to them in other way in other ways but okay some of the things like duran duran no yeah (laughs) i don't remember duran duran sorry oh wow rude in our times it was more like I don't really want to say. To yeah, you do. You do so do. So it was say. Oasis, right? Oasis. It was, uh, oh, yeah. Take that. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. good. So you know, those are the sorts of things that my friends were into, and I would say I, just being a teenager, I was kind of certain things I would play a lot. I would go along with, or, but really, I was a very studious person. You know, I was a really. I had great friendships with my teachers, believe it or not. Um, 
I loved my teachers and that probably made me you know I was called a SWAT and stuff like that obviously but um, at the same time I, I actually didn't care because I loved um, I, I would say I had a great childhood I grew up loving Britain mm. loving being in Britain feeling very British I didn't feel anything else you know um, then why have you rejected it by putting on niqab <laughs> seriously why have you let everybody down I, I, I what are you like, doing I feel like the hijab and just dressing and being a Muslim woman was something that the message I was always given by my teachers and by mm. my you know the environments that I grew up in was that be yourself right be mm. yourself and it's okay to be you in Britain it's okay to be you in Britain we celebrate you you know, so mm. if anything, I would say that the freedom I felt to explore my religion, which I did, you know, as a teenager, I, I was studying all the different subjects. I was in like an A star student, right? Um, straight A student. And I'm, I'm not the sort of person who's just going to accept something. Yeah. Right. I literally had questions. My dad would. But buy do me you actually think that, and... that? But do you think that the teachers who were saying go and explore everything actually meant go and explore faith? Because I think there is a, you know, like my, I took my daughter to Bristol to have a look around a couple mm. of weeks ago, Bristol Uni, and the, the the minute my back was turned, the professor turned to my daughter and said, "You know, this this college, this university is all about doing what you want and not letting your parents know." And she was like, "Literally, I'm in a hijab here, a person of faith. My mum is over there, and you're you're telling me." basically come and get drunk with me and the students i mean what are you doing so go and explore that mm. but don't but we're not being encouraged is there a, i mean i guess what i'm saying is 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 there a parameter that you felt like that's not where we meant you to go or do you still feel the same about britain today i think there were different types of people right so mm. i remember once i went up to a science i really wanted to be an astronaut okay uh, as a child, as a teenager. And I, I'm, I was very serious about it. I'm actually not joking, you know, it's not like... Knowing a, you, I believe you could have done it. Yeah, I joined the RAF. <laughs> Cadets, right? <laughs> I looked them up in the yellow paint, literally, wow. right? And that's the sort of person I was. And my dad, my dad, I think this this is also important. My dad was not the sort of person who shuts you down. You know, he, he mm. even though he's a scholar, he's uh, from India... He's a scholar from uh, who mm. studied in Deoband, which is a very traditional seminary in India, and he's a mufti. His style of parenting was throw them in the deep end and let them swim and let them find their path and trust in God. He, he really had that mm. kind of um, philosophy, I'd say. And so I remember when I, when I said to him, I want to join the RAF cadets, he said, okay look into it then you know and he that's the sort of person he was whereas I know other people would have just shut that down um but even my the reason why I joined the RAF cadets was my t science teacher told me that that's how you become an astronaut so well you know most astronauts are actually scientists and but they're also pilots you know usually mm. they're pilots and they you know so my teachers and then my home life was never shutting down anything that I was interested in pursuing, do you see? Um, I really never felt that. There was a point, uh, like when I was about to get married. So I, was, I got married when I was 19. Um, and I had gone into my school to visit my teachers. This is how friendly I was with my teachers, that mm. even when I'd left, I, I went in, mm. I took them copies of the Quran. Mm. And Mr. Jobson, I remember, uh, my fav one of my favorite teachers, business studies, he said to me, uh, but Fatima, don't you want to be free? Mm. You know, when I told him I'm getting married. And that was I was really surprised at that because for me and for a Muslim girl who's grown up in a you know religious way and has not had a relationship with boys, etc., etc., marriage represented freedom. Mm. You see, it was the freedom Ooh, to be free with a man, basically, yeah. for the first time and to be, yeah. you know, um, to explore a side of myself that I hadn't. You see, so I, I realized at that point that, oh, you see, our framing of freedom is different um, because of our 
outlook and a bit of a misconception that you I suppose that that like in uh, old time Christianity you're being passed from the father to the husband right, as yeah. a as a goods and chattel I guess it's yeah. that, that's where it comes from I mean I think they knew me well enough yeah. to know that you know I was a not that sort of person who you know I questioned things I explored I I used to have religious discussions with my teachers, you know. So uh, they knew that I wasn't the sort of person who was just being uh, married off, if you like. Do you know we're so we're so honoured at Salam to have you on the podcast, and there there is so much to to talk about because you're on you're on the on the way to scholarship now, and and you represent you know kind of down to earth, um, honest seeking of knowledge in in the in the context of being here now with an approachability and I, and I think that that's that's so important that we can just I wish we could just package you up and just keep you here all the time I want to talk a little bit about your books though and okay. and uh, Hadija for example yeah so at the moment I've I have one book that's been published and that's uh, Khadija mother of history's greatest nation uh, published by learning roots and uh, it's a book that was written for, um, I would say, g- uh, children, uh, but it was kind of older children with older children in mind. However, you know, I'm seeing that a lot of adults are reading it as well. So it's written in a unique style. Um, you know, as a child, my dad would buy me books about the great women of Islam. And often they were so dry and um, mm. quite depressing, I, I would say. That's, that's the way <laughs> yeah. I would describe it. You know, for, for because a girl it, growing up in the because West. I guess it was all about sacrifice. Those those were the big bits that were focused yeah, on. It's yeah. just the focus. There was a lot of um, sacrifice, sadness as well. Because yeah. obviously there were tough times. Yeah. But actually, it wasn't really just that. I think uh, what it was is that you know, as an author, now I'm very conscious of this. I think authors have the ability to present things in a certain way and to kind of take care of the emotional journey of the reader, right? And I don't think maybe authors back in the day, or maybe because some of those books were just translations, you know, um, were very conscious of that, mm. you see? So mm. so for me, writing Khadija was about taking, and I knew that the majority of people reading the book would be girls, taking them on a emotional journey as well. So. Yeah, there is the sacrifice. Yes, there are the tough times. But how are we, as people growing up in the West and, you know, in in the 21st century, how are we supposed to benefit and uh, look at that, you know? And how is it that actually in the end, looking at the bigger picture of their lives, they were successful, Mm. you know? Mm. I think that um, was really know, important. I, to I, um, I, I have to credit Sister Nama B. Roberts for this, mm-hmm. um, for pointing out that, for example, Khadija, if you want to play the victim card, uh, she lost uh, several children. And all yeah. of her sons, they they died mm. before they reached two or three years old. She had a husband who was poor, uh, a, a mission that used up all of her wealth, ended up living in effectively a refugee camp. Yeah. Um, you know, that could have been the life of a victim. And yet she's a hero. She's a hero. And her mind, her, her, her vision, mindset, her vision, vision yeah. was never limited to this, to her own life. Yeah. You see, like we... Me and you, sitting here in London today, are part of her legacy. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like that is so. That is wow, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is wow, and uh, so for her, she never got to see the uh, the fruits, the full fruits of her vision or of of the mm. thing that she was working towards within her lifetime, right? She never got to see that. She didn't even get to see Islam spread to to Makkah, right? To Medina, sorry, right? She she yeah. was literally she yeah. she passed away just after the boycott period ended. However, everything that happened afterwards was part of her legacy. She literally bankrolled the dawah, right? So, I think it's really like important for, and I think having been a young girl growing up in the West, mm. I was conscious of the type of female role models that are constantly put to us as the role models and how um, when little girls are picking up my book, they're looking for a role model. They're looking for a way of being, you know, a way of looking at the world. Mm. So I hope I've tried to, you know, put that in there, Um, but I've tried to do it in a very 
literary style. So when you're reading it, it reads like a fiction book. Mm. It's kind of like what yeah. Martin Lings did with um, his pro- uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, on the book that he wrote, Martin Lings. Mm-hmm. Have you read that, by the way? I haven't read it in uh, It's completely. a beautiful edition. i read parts of it. Because yeah. he wrote it, you know, it's writing it in the novel form, but sticking right. true, true to what Because it's happened. a story. It is and a it's story. a story and let us feel it and letting us connecting with it, yeah. Yeah, so, so that was really important. And now I'm working on the book about Aisha, Radilanha. So, uh, you know, looking forward to that because she's another very you know, important figure. Well, when we're talking about Hadija radiallahu anhu, we're, we're also talking about holding ourselves up to a higher standard um, as as Muslim women. You know, we all we all uh, get up in the morning and we go on the underground or we get to work and then we have our daily lives and then we're at home or we're doing our daily lives at home with our families. So, you know, it's a busy life, right? Um, but when we are Muslims as well, we, do, do you understand that some some sisters, for example, might just feel exhausted by Islam. That Does it sometimes become like another job to do or another fulfillment externally? I'll give you an example. Um, a sister um, rang me via um, Instagram. She said, I'm in trouble. Can you help me? And I, I spoke to her and she said, you know what? I'm 49 years old and I'm taking off my hijab. She said, I'm sick of it. I can't do it another day. You know that 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 it's another layer of difficulty. What what do you think about that? About upping our game? I think um, the external, right? So the way we're dressed, the way our Islam presents itself externally, is a is a uh, is a is the sorry. Can you say that again? Can we do that again? So uh, I'm thinking about this this idea of. Um, you know, Muslim women sometimes finding that, that Islam is another layer of expectation put yeah. upon us. Like we're constantly told to up our game, whether it's in beauty or parenting or, you know, there's so many ways we can get things wrong. Do you understand the aspect of when some sisters might feel exhausted by, oh, what, Islam as well? Mm. Just in a form of yeah. expectation. So, for example, even with Khadija, radiallahu anhu, she's so beautiful and so full of strength and energy. What about our weekdays? How, how do we cope with those weekdays? I think life is full of struggles. And if we buy into this narrative that life is supposed to be fun and happy and, you know, stick a smile on it all the time, then we're going to be very sorely disappointed. So, for me... Um, it's really important to take care of the internal, the internal. So, you know, for example, just raising a daughter, raising children myself now, I'm very conscious that Islam is not just about telling them what to do and what not to do. It's not about, have you prayed? Have you done, are you going to fast? You, you have to fast, you have to do this, you have to do that, you know? It's not about that. It's about slowly, uh, over a period of time, nurturing faith. Mm. within our children and within ourselves right mm. so so i think sometimes um you know when we feel like giving up or when when they when we're having a crisis that is very visible externally it's actually a, a symptom of something that's happening internally mm. right so the the nourishment or the the effort that needs to be put in is actually internal mm. right so often you know there'll be sisters they come to me as well, right? Well, who I meet and they'll express things like that, you know, finding certain things too difficult, um, etc. But then when we sit down and talk about it, actually it's other things, non unrelated to Islam, that are causing them to have those reactions, right? Ah, and then it come, comes out as a, 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 as a, a kind of discontent with our faith because it's making our iman low. Absolutely. And actually with this... With this um, with the, with the younger generation now, we can't underestimate the negative effects of constantly being online, mm. you know, and constantly being connected virtually, but disconnected with with real human beings. So I went out with a with a, a girl the other day, um, who's having uh, problems, and and you know she's been through depression and. Mm. So I'm a chaplain as well, you know, yeah. so I'm, I've been doing chaplaincy work in that way. And w- it occurred to me that the real issue that she had, right, when we dug a bit deeper, the, the reason why she felt low self-esteem, 
very kind of negative about her appearance. All of these things. And we know, you know, that women are constantly bombarded with, you know, all these images, all these, the pressure to constantly mm. change ourselves, to be a certain way, to fit a perfect... To look at ourselves in the mirror. And feel negative and dissatisfied. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? But we are all victims of that, right? We've all been pressured into that. Um, there have been books written about it, right? The beauty myth. Um, mm. and, and there's so many books about these kinds of things. Um, what occurred to me is that this girl, she was constantly on Instagram, right? Mm. Now, I know that sounds like, oh, is that it, right? But really, the human brain, right? If, we, if you were... I, I can imagine if I was like uh, a couple of decades, maybe a decade earlier, yeah. right? When I was a teenager, mm. Alhamdulillah, internet came later, right? So, so I was past my, uh, you know, I was in my twenties mm. when the internet was there. So I'm a bit more mature. But I can imagine as a teenager, if I had been looking at images of all these girls and women online, right, and looking at people's lives, and that was my connection with other human beings. Of course you'd feel rubbish, you'd feel worthless, you know. I'm you'd telling feel... you, that's so true. I mean, we had Whitney Houston, and that was bad enough. But she yeah. was one person. She wasn't everybody in the girl next door using uh, right. and you, and filters you actually to make had themselves to look amazing. Switch a television yeah, right. on, right? Yeah, you had to take an action, yeah. You had to, and, and you probably had, like, your two hours of television a yeah. day or something, right? Mm. That's what we had. And it wasn't, like, all... It wasn't there all the time, even though it was there. Mm. You know, it was bad enough, basically. But can you imagine, like, your hand. a lot of girls and a lot of young people are living online now. And so they're judging their lives by the airbrushed and uh, edited version of somebody else's life, mm. right? Mm. I mean, I'm on Instagram. You don't get to see, you know, like, the day when, you know, I'm having a really bad day when, you know, my, my house is a mess, and you know my the food got burnt right you know why don't you don't we do get that, to see then? that i'm having a bad day today <laughs> ah, why are you <laughs> my burnt food yeah do you burn food yeah i do okay <clears throat> are you a because good, are you a good cook yeah i am and I i'm jumping know. around here but i want to humanize this because yeah. you know what i mean that's exactly what I am we're a good cook, that's kind but of what we do burn do, but you do my burn food sometimes it's not, yeah it's normal yeah usually when i'm trying to do two things at once which you should never do yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you're you're into monotasking, not multitasking. Because I'm looking. For, let's get some tips from you. Because you know what, we we are looking at a new generation. Inshallah, in this country of um, you know homegrown sheikhs, scholars from here, sisters rising through uh, the 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 ilm uh, tears to to uh, enable us to understand our life here mm -hmm. better in this both in dunya and, and actually in this uh, conceptual age. And uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about your journey to, to becoming a scholar because when I think, oh, you know, because we all, I think as Muslims, a nice daydream is, if I, you know, I, I want more ilma, I, I do want to get more knowledge. And then we do a little bit and then we go, yeah, it got a bit hard that, a bit busy now. Yeah. Is that a thing? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean... Is it something you experience? It, I, think, I think it's, to become a scholar is not for everybody, right? Mm. It's not, and not everybody's required to do that, right? So I would say at the very least, all of us should learn about the fundamentals. We should know about our five pillars of Islam, for example, and the details of the five pillars, you know, mm. like how to give zakah, how to pray and make wudu and those things, right? So for everyday living, those are the kind of things that all of us should know about. And I would say, I would put in there, learning the life of the Prophet وسلم, studying a seerah seerah is the life of the Prophet وسلم, course or you know studying mm. it properly mm. from beginning to end mm. I would say is a must mm. in our times because there's so much in there for Can us to learn something, you know what do you think I mean Sheikh Yasser Qadi for example he has a mm -hmm. brilliant seerah of the Prophet peace be upon him online mm -hmm. and I'm working my way through exactly. it is, is, mm. that, is that is that an acknowledged form of as long as you're focused on it, you know, if you're cooking and listening to it, how much are you taking in? Can, can you see you've done a course on the Sira if you've completed a course like that that happens to be online that he's delivered to classrooms? Yeah, I mean, all of us are different. I mean, if you're going to, there's certain tasks that we do that are quite mm. automatic, right? When you're doing those tasks, definitely listen to stuff. You know, I do that all the time. Mm. I've learned so much. I learned so mm. much Arabic. Mm. 
when I had a newborn baby. Did you? And I was literally breastfeeding for hours and hours. Yeah. And I would listen to Arabic lectures, right? I, I would listen to familiar Arabic lectures, like mm. so the stories of the prophets, because I knew them already. Now listening to them in Arabic, it was helping me with my Arabic. Mm. And I literally spent hours and hours mm. learning in those times when I couldn't go to classes, right? Mm. When I was uh, a young mother, I would literally learn through that way. So, I mean, definitely there's so many ways, you know, open to us if we're willing to take them. But obviously the path to scholarship is is a more intense path, mm. right? Um, it, we do need some people in every community, right? And I would I would actually say maybe a person in every family even, right? Mm. Who's willing to uh, to really study Islam properly, you know, in a, in a lot of detail and become a scholar because, you know, the, uh, I come from a family where my father is a scholar, right? And I can see, I always saw growing up how, even though he wasn't the eldest brother, he was the, the, the anchor of the family, you know, uh, because he was knowledgeable and wise, you know, and he was able to help everyone in his community. You know, just by being, because he was a scholar and, and because of yeah. his personality. And I, and I could really see the benefit of that, you know, because a lot of the time when people squabble, a lot of the time when things go wrong, it's because of lack of knowledge. It's because mm. people um, people have, got, have, have moved away from Islam, have, mm. you know, maybe adopted certain cultural things or justice is not being done, right? And for me, whenever I saw my parents in any community, and we moved quite a lot, as children, they represented to me uh, the, the household where people could come for justice to get their issues resolved, you know, as mediators. And that's how I've always seen them. And so for me, I, and, I, and I know it's because my dad, he's literally got libraries full of books and he likes books more than human beings, I think, <laughs> you know, as, as did a person. You, did and, you know it's better for a child to face some turbulence that is then resolved in terms of, of, of character strength than to have had it just just easy. And of course, the worst option is for a household where there is turbulence and, and uh, that is unresolved because it gives them a blueprint for there are unresolvable conflicts rather than a blueprint for there is resolution and this is how you work towards it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Why, why did you mention that? Sorry. I was just because I was thinking about how your father was, you know, someone who would resolve squabbles in your household oh, and yeah. using ilm in a daily place. I mean, like with the wider relatives, you yeah, know, and, and also just random people because he was the, the, the mufti, right? So yeah. people literally phoned my household. They used to come turn up, you know, to have their issues resolved. And, and, and so seeing that, and also he's a scholar on the Sharia councils and and one of the great things I've experienced recently is studying with him right because mm. even though I grew up with him mm. so I probably through osmosis have you know taken in so much from him I never actually sat in a class where he was teaching a text to me mm. right um, so when I was like 16 he took me to Egypt he really inspired me to want to be a scholar um, I remember the conversation you know he said to me uh, so what what are you going to do? And, and I was like, I want to be a surgeon. I wanted to be everything, right? As you can tell. <laughs> so I wanted to be a surgeon. Mm -hmm. I was about to go into do my A-levels and, you know, do all the sciences. And um, my dad said to me, yeah, that, that's an option, you know, if you want to do that. Um, I want you to explore other, I want to tell you about other options, you know, just as a parent would. Mm -hmm. And one option he told me was, how about going to Egypt and studying islamic studies studying arabic because he knew i was into that as well right and he said because you know uh there are lots of doctors of people's physical hearts but there aren't many doctors of people's spiritual hearts and i remember that like really like struck a chord with me right because i never really had thought of it like that so our household was a household where scholarship and serious study and service to like to the community was was seen as the highest thing, right? That's how my mum brought us up, and 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 is, mm. isn't that an important thing to to put into practice in our lives? In that, if we can take away one thing from our chat today, I'll take away that 
Islam is not for Fridays. It is not a Jummah thing. It is it is something to show rather than to speak, even though that you spend so much of your time, mashallah, in, 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 we study books, yeah. not for the sake of studying books, no, no. but for the sake of sharing. And what does sharing mean? It's not just talking, it's it's the doing. Yeah, and, and another thing my dad really made clear to me was knowledge is there to fix you up. Mm. Yeah, It's not there for you to fix the world up. Ooh, yeah. Say that again. I love that. <laughs> knowledge when you seek knowledge of the deen when you seek knowledge about islam about god about about the world about you know um hmm. the tr- the treasure of the prophet because that's what we are learning when as islamic scholars we are studying the inheritance of the prophet because you know we know the the prophet sallallahu he never left behind money he left behind knowledge that was his inheritance right that was his uh the thing that he left behind and so that's why the scholars are known as the heirs of the prophets so what that means is a lot of people you know they'll go into wanting to be a scholar and they'll think okay i'm gonna fix the world i'm gonna fix up this and that but one of the things my dad made clear to us was knowledge is there first and foremost to fix you up right you've got to use it to fix yourself you've got to act upon it you've got to you know it's no good being the one who's trying to fix the world when you haven't sorted yourself out, you know? So that was a really important element. I remember um, coming to Islam and day one, I told a friend of mine called Anne. So I just took my shahada the day before. I said, Islam isn't going to change me. And she kind of looked at me strangely. And I remember that look as I went on my journey. And I remember fi- and, the, and the, the meaning of that look was, if it doesn't change you, what's the point? Yeah, because absolutely. you know we we must not. We, I, I think there's a lack of confidence now sometimes in in ourselves in in having something good to offer the world, and we have we have the best product with the worst sales force, you know. And and Islam is there to 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 change us. And you know, if I'm not bettered, I I met um, an old friend called Clive yesterday, and the reason that I met him is because I know he's had a tough time. And I cut all of my friends and colleagues off when I came to Islam. And then mm. I've been speaking about about the love of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to strangers. And I forgot I forgot the people who cared about me. So I wanted to see him and share that. Now, if he hadn't said, you've changed a bit, or at least some, I, w- I would have felt that I'd failed Islam. Islam has not failed me. I've failed if I haven't changed. So let it change us. I guess that's... Yeah, absolutely. Because, you see, being... Uh constantly being a, like being an activist and being there's nothing wrong with that obviously there's there's we should be activists in 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 one way but only being an activist and only being that sort of person who's constantly trying to externalize problems mm. means that you're actually doing the easy work you know because okay she's killing me now it's true it's true. go on so uh, it's easy to it's it's easy to preach it is it's easy to talk it's easy to for some people you know it's like really easy and it's easy to look at the world and and the people around us as well and think that the reason why there are problems in your life is because of them because of external causes right my parents my this my that my husband's not this or my Mm. wife is not that or Mm. that happened to me when i was a child and you know etc etc not that those things don't have an effect of course they they could have an effect however you know it's easy to externalize the the thing that we've got power over is ourselves the thing that we've and the very fact that if you're going through a test the very fact that you're going through that test as muslims we know that allah would not allow you to experience that test if you didn't have the strength and you didn't have the ability within you, you know, you might have to muster it up. You might have to work on it, but you have it within you to overcome that test. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be experiencing that. So I think uh, when we look at the world in that way and when we ask ourselves whenever something is happening and all of us struggle with something, you know, it's not even people who look like they have perfect lives, they're struggling with something when we look at the world in in the way that okay i've got this struggle i've got this uh maybe a calamity maybe you know something very very difficult 
but Allah loves me. Allah wants good for me. I'm, I, and, and we talk to Allah constantly, right? Mm. Then we should be 100% sure that Allah will give us the strength and the ability to become stronger, to grow in some way, you know, in order to be able to overcome mm. that. Um, and so I'm, I'm really keen on, on us taking on that approach, you know, to life. Because God knows what things are lying ahead, right? Mm. In any of our lives, in, for Muslims in the UK, for, and an aspect of, you know, the, the whole topic of um, uh, holding ourselves up to a higher standard. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that we are the best nation that he extracted for the sake of mankind. Why? Because we enjoin the good, we forbid the evil, and we, and we believe in Allah and all that that means, right? Mm -hmm. If we are to be the best nation, that means that we've got to be the best women, right? <laughs> we've got to be the women who strengthen ourselves so much, right? Internally, I mean, you know, that then we can go out and be of use and, and be able to strengthen and bring the rest of humanity on board, right? Mm onto the right path. Now, if we are going to be victims and if we're going to be weak and if we're going to fall down at the first sign of struggle, and, and the reason why I say that is that, you know, my mom, uh, growing up in the 80s, that was struggle, you know, as, 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 a, as a brown person who wore hijab. My mom was like the only hijabi that we knew, literally. So when she walked on the streets, mm. any person who walked past her or any white person, right, at that time, um, you knew that there was going to be some racist remark. And the good thing was that my mom didn't understand English. So so half the time she, she didn't know what they were saying, right? But us kids, we, we knew, right? We knew. We were very aware of that. Mm. We had racist neighbours sometimes, you know, who'd do all sorts of things, that people wrote things on our front door, right? People threw things through our letterbox. Th these sorts of things happened, right? That's hard. Yeah. Yeah, growing up in an Instagram culture where I'm not saying it's not hard for some people, but let's put it into perspective, you know, like the pressures of wanting to wear makeup and look good and and because of that, you're like finding it hard to wear hijab. That's like you really need to reframe that. You need, really need to look at what real hardship is, you know, because our mums didn't go through what they went through in the 80s, right? for then our generation to just fall apart at the first sign of struggle. Then there's, so, so let's talk, you know, a little bit briefly about this idea of authenticity, mm. which has come up via some uh, vloggers and some fashion um, YouTubers out there. Uh, one in particular who recently removed her hijab. And there's this idea that if you, in order to be authentic, so for example, somebody's having a bad day, they they don't feel very good on their prayers or they no they don't feel any spiritual connection to Allah Ta'ala so they're not being authentic themselves by wearing hijab they're being phony and they're being hypocritical so better to take it off and show people who they are be honest well, authentic know, the thing is there's there's two aspects to that one is living your life online right so that comes with its own baggage right mm. So people who are trying to live their lives online, whether they admit it or not, they're living for the likes, they're living for the people, you know. And it's, it's an unhealthy way of living because I think in 10, 20 years time, they'll look back and they'll really regret a lot of the stuff that, you know, they've been putting out there. And the sort of very much kind of self-imposed glare of, you know, the lights and the cameras and that they've put because it's themselves. not easy it's like everybody trying to create a celebrity persona around right. themselves and i come from that world any mm -hmm. anyway and i can tell you that that it's highly addictive right hard to get out of it's like a, nar a narcotic Definitely. with no real-time reward right and also it makes you a needy clingy and also life is hard and to yeah. have to live that out <laughs> you know in so publicly yeah that's right it can't be good that's for true, you true. because you can't be authentic yeah. authenticity comes mm. from a place of stillness right mm. 
mm. a place of meditation, stillness, when um, you can mm. when you can focus on yourself and mm. and your relationship with Allah. It doesn't come from switching the camera on. So here I'm going to ask ask us to go into specifics here because um, I know that that you um, you know I know you're clued up and you're savvy on social media networks um, because you have um, uh, you know your own podcast for example mashallah on Muslim Central and you have things that, that you need to share as, as a scholar and uh, I, I know that, that you're you're aware of those. Have you ever felt a moment for example when you're like I'm not posting that because that was not authentically me. And because I find myself anyway checking my intentions, Definitely. but more than that going, that was phony. Or if I feel myself kind of slipping into, uh, I'm seeing this as a post rather than a real situation, I'll take myself away for a few hours because I know I'm getting sick. Well, at the moment I'm reading a book called uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport, right? And it's about, what is going to be the really valuable, what are going to be the really valuable skills and mm. the really valuable work that we can produce as human beings, uh, you know, in the next decades or century. And he's talking about getting off social media. Mm. And that might sound a bit radical to some people. Uh, and some people might, social media might be part of their work, whatever. But I've actually taken his advice and um, I've taken a hiatus from social media okay. recently right. and it's been the best thing that I did so first of all yeah you're right like I started noticing that I started mm. asking myself mm. why do I want to share that yeah <laughs> with people am I showing off because mm. I think there's a part of that mm. you know that is a part True. of it sometimes right am I trying to inspire but Okay, but you know this. Inspire to what? To you yeah. or to really exactly. sort of finding a lot? Exactly. Am I calling people yeah. to myself? Uh-huh. Am I trying to draw attention That's to myself? It. And as a Muslim woman, there's problems with that as well, you know, mm. because at the end of the day, you know, we we do want to preserve a certain level of privacy um, and dignity, right? Um, but also, like, you know, am I getting all the kicks that I want in life, right? through these social media posts. And I think that's mm. one of the big problems that's happening, right? Mm. Is that every time we post something online, we get a dopamine hit, right? We get a high. And we're feeling those highs from that. And because of that, we're kind of going through life in that shallow place, right? Because most of what we post online is kind of shallow, right? Mm. And we don't have time to do and we don't have the focus and attention now mm. to do the deep work so you've written a book right that that's deep work mm. y- you can't write a book a good book right it's about getting into the flow it's about the flow right and yeah. focus yeah. you can't constantly be checking things and yeah. then do it no you you need yeah. to focus you need to sort of become yeah. a bit like a hermit yeah. for a bit right and 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 what i'd say uh, you know would you say this i mean i have an app on my phone for example that grows trees uh, when you take time off okay. so you get a certain amount of point, points and in real time a tree is a tree is planted i love it uh, you know find wow. find it it's amazing app. so i will go two hours yeah you know uh you know and then it's normally like i will check the phone i want to be able to go to four but i know that there are sisters out there and brothers out there who would do five to ten minutes is quite painful yeah, so I think the thing is, we are the first generation that's experiencing mm. this social media. Yep. We don't know the full effects of its um, mm. craziness, you know, on, on our on our lives. And we're probably going to look back and be able to identify it at some point. Um, but I think, you know, some of these books like Deep Work, for example, and also there's a book called The One Thing, which really talks about focusing on one thing, mm. you know. And uh, these sorts of books, they're really mm. trying to draw us away from this uh, this need for constant hits, right, mm. of highs that we yeah. get from from social media, and developing the ability to get down and do work that requires a high level of intellectual and um, mental focus. Mm. And I'm writing research papers. You know, I I've like I've just ordered like this many books, a pile of books this high from Egypt. I need to read them. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to be able to read those books and write a really good dissertation if I'm on social media. I so it's, it's, that, I think so. It's, impo- it's just important to share that maybe a couple of months you were finding that you were doing a bit and then dipping out. Were you finding that the yeah, yeah. phone so, was calling you? So when I started yeah. writing my book, yeah. 
I would be so like exasperated. I would be like, I've just spent a day in the library, right? Yeah. And I don't really have much to show for it. Mm. And I realized it was mm. because of that, right? Sure. Because of the constant checking in, yeah. you know, or even just having another um, window open, right? Yeah. Like in the back, a tab open yeah. where you could just casually look at Facebook. You see, every time you're doing that, what's happening is your, your attention gets uh, refocused to something else. But also there's something called attention residue, right? Which is that the last task that you just did, mm. and now, now that you're doing another task, don't think that now you're 100% focused on that. No, there's a residue from, and social media is the worst because everyone knows that, you know, you be on, you're on Twitter for like a few minutes and you get a little bit stressed, stressed afterwards, yeah. right? There's, the stress goes up. There's yeah. something... There's some conversation that annoys you, right? Yeah. Or some narrative that's being peddled. That, mm. And, and, and so, it's no longer us producing that. It's no longer a natural moment right. related to where we're sitting and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's somebody else's stress and something yeah. happening, out, happening outside that's yes, completely yes. irrelevant. And we're bringing that yeah. to our work. Yeah. We're bringing it to our families. Mm. <laughs> we're bringing it to our marriages oh, sometimes, yeah. you know? Mm. So I, I really think... Mm. Um, it's been good to, for me to take a hiatus and yeah. if somebody doesn't want to do that at least at the very least have you know have breaks have breaks from this technology because i think it's going to take about a decade for us to look back and say hmm that's the effect that that had on my this that or the other right and it was only when i could literally put my phone on flight mode yeah send messages to everyone, you know, to the important people that look, I'm going to be off. I'm not going to be contactable for a while, right? For, for an hour or even like for that, for today, right? For a few hours, I will do that, put my phone on flight mode and start writing my book. Mashallah. And that's the only way I got through it. I'm guessing that there was a dua you made when you did that. Is, it, is, there, is there a dua for increasing concentration? That you'd recommend for increasing concentration or refocus. I think, off the top of my head, uh, the dua that my parents are always, my mum taught me was, "Rabbi shrahli sadri wa yasirli amri wa hlul uqtatam min lisani yafqahu qawli." So, uh, the beginning of that dua in particular, this is a dua that Musa alayhi salam said when he. Um, was about to meet the pharaoh right but the beginning part is especially you know important that oh allah increase uh, expand for me my chest and what that kind of metaphorically means is this difficult thing i'm about to do <laughs> make it easy make mm. it feel easy because mm. most of the time the difficult things we're about to do it's about a feeling isn't it mm. Mm. so make this thing easy for me rabbi shrahli sadri uh and make and make this issue, this affair, mm. in front of me easy. Uh, and then it says, Wahlul uqtatam min lisani yafqahu qawli and um, untie, my untie my tongue, yeah, uh, so that they understand what I'm saying. Mm. And actually, that's very relevant to writing a book, if you mm. think about it. Mm. Because you want Allah to untie your tongue on paper, right? And you want the you want people to receive it the way you meant it mm. rather than in mm. some other way right mm. so for me that dua is very yes. important um apart from that you know i i just i just felt like um yeah const i think life is about constantly talking to allah if you spend your life talking to allah more than you talk to people um how can you go astray you know because allah loves us to call on him he loves us to talk to him. He loves us to call on him. So any area of life when we admit to Allah that we're weak and we don't mm, know what we're doing sure. and we need him sure. and we need his his help and mm. we need his guidance, you know, of course he will help us. And and that's another important point. Um, having husn adhan of Allah, having a positive, positive thoughts and positive expectation from Allah. You see, a lot of people when you meet them and they're going through difficult times and or feeling very negative about the mm. deen, etc. It's often because they they've lost that. Let, let's talk about some of those mm. some of the phrases that that might be linked to that. I can't right. see a way out of this. Things are always going wrong for me. Yeah. Um. I don't believe things are going to get better. Right. Um. I you know I feel that this is going to go badly. 
Yeah, exactly. But but even beyond that, just like not being able to see beyond the thing that's in front of you, mm. you know. Um, for me, I think, I don't know if it was something that my mum instilled in me or, you know, just something from Allah over time that developed. Whenever something difficult has happened, um, and even when I look back at the negative things that I've experienced, right? Really tough times, like, for example, when I was in Egypt as a young student, you know, I was very lonely and very kind of away from my family. And there were some really tough times and times when I went off course. And now that I look back at them, I feel like I have the ability to, uh, to think of them as things that built me, right? And things that I learned from, mm. or as things that will, that I can use as an excuse for why I'm not what I think I should be, right? Or why life isn't as I think it should be. So I think so those our are, those minds are, are very important. So the there's the two choices there. There's, there's the, this has built me and helped me, or I can't do this because of this. It's holding yeah. that all everything else has led to me being held back in some areas rather than everything is from Allah. And that means that it's built me. Absolutely. Like I'll give you another example. Right. I don't know if this is relevant to people, but it's relevant to me. Um, I always wanted to be a scholar when I, when I since I went to Egypt and then I came. It didn't work out in Egypt. I, I studied there for two years, which was great. But I had planned to live there, you know, and literally graduate from Al-Azhar and I couldn't finish uh, studying at Al-Azhar, so I had to come back. Yeah, and then I got married and I had children. Now, I would see like other brothers, usually, uh, young brothers who wanted to be scholars, jetting off to different countries, go spend four years, mm. you know, mm. graduate, mm. come back, right? And, and they were scholars and they were able to, you know, do their work, etc. For me, I had children, um, we tried to move abroad and things weren't working out and you know there, there were there was a period of struggle where i really want i really felt like am i never going to be able to do this right um literally because of my new responsibilities and the lack of resources in the uk mm. right so we couldn't move abroad at the time um and i remember i used to there was a part of me i would say shaitan came to me and would put this thought in my mind like why is it so difficult for you to achieve something that you set out for when you were young? You know, how come it's so easy for brothers, right? Mm. Especially, you know, they, they've got families. They, they're jetting off and doing their studies and coming back and sheikh so-and-so, right? Um, and you're having to study, like, literally, like, I'm nearly 40 now and I'm, I'm about to graduate, right? Mm. So can you imagine, like, mm. all of those years of study and... Um, but you know what, subhanAllah, like, I realize now what I gained in all those years, mm. that a young graduate who just, who's fresh out of uni doesn't have, right? And that is, I got to be part of a Dawah organization, one of the best Dawah organizations in the world and meet some of the great, greatest Da'is and I would say visionary people, right? I got to raise four children. So I was like, literally in the trenches of, of, <laughs> of life, life, right? Yeah. Right? And so now when I'm studying my books, right? And, and so then mm. during that time when my children became old enough, seminaries started springing up in the, in the UK, right? So, like proper Islamic seminaries. Yeah. And it was, I realized, you know what? Wow. It's because I'm ready and the time is right. And Allah, Allah is not, he, he, it's not that he doesn't hear that, that what, what I want, right? He's been taking me on a journey all this time, mm. but his journey, the journey he wanted me to take and the way he wanted me to get there, not the way, the sort of very easy and very slimmed down, you know, um, way that I had envisaged as, as a teenager. So, subhanAllah, like, I, I really see the blessings and the, and the benefits of it not having gone according to my plan, but having gone according to Allah's plan. MashaAllah. 
I'm going to wrap up now with a few speedy, I don't like quick fire questions because I think that can raise the stress levels. Let's just call it a little bit uh, some some of your okay. nice speedy answers. Sister, what are you proudest of? Um, I would have to say my, my family and my children. Yeah. Um, because I think family is a project and I think that's really important for us to internalize you know family is a project and working on different projects I realized that there's nothing different about family you know you're managing different people personalities you're mm -hmm. you're having to plan things you're having to have a vision you have to get through difficult times you have to have debriefs you have to have annual planning you know all of that kind of thing um, and the reason why I would say my children or family is that, you know, I think that's the work, especially as women, that we do that doesn't get seen, you know, mm. it doesn't get the likes, it doesn't get, it's not a very public thing. And especially when they're very young, there's a lot we put into our families and our children that we see the fruits of later, um, but nobody really knows that it was actually us who planted those seeds, mm. right? So I think like recently my, my son did his first khutbah, right? His first khutbah and led the Juma prayer Mashallah. at sixth form. Wow. And I know that that sounds weird, but for me, that was a very proud moment to know that he, he did that by himself, you yeah. know? Mashallah. Yeah, so alhamdulillah. Save him. Um, how has your life been different than what you'd imagined? Obviously, you're not an astronaut. That's number one. You never know. Yeah, Virgin not yet. Galactic. I'm going to say not yet. Virgin Galactic. Have you heard of it? Yeah, mm. so like there are all these um, projects now, you know, for... I love that that is still tourism. in your mind. It is. <laughs> Why do you want to go to space? I love astronomy, right? Um... I'm planning on doing some astronomy courses at some point, you know, because I, that's a part of me, you know, I can't okay. tell you, like I I was obsessed with astronomy books and books about space. And I think what it is, is that when I read about the first time Neil Armstrong saw the earth and, you know, when I, when you, ex when you think about it, how amazing it is that we're like these little dots on this mm. blue mm. planet spinning mm. in, in space. When you just think about that, just think, wow, subhanAllah, it's, mm. I think it would give me a, a perspective um, that's impossible for us to have on this earth. MashaAllah, beautiful. How would you like to be remembered? Oh, I haven't started yet. I really don't feel like I've got started yet, so mm. I don't want to say. Okay, and uh, I'm going to ask you just for fun, um, what's your favourite podcast? Honestly, because uh, go on. Okay, I've got two favorite podcasts at the moment. One is Russell Brand's podcast. Okay, <laughs> okay, it's okay, it's okay. I feel your pain. <laughs> no, what I love about his podcast is he has authors, right, yeah. and academics, and yeah. just amazing people who actually I probably wouldn't ever read or come across, mm -hmm. right. And he'll have a very kind of deep, like a conversation with them that draws out their work. And for me, um, often like I found that often you learn the most when you're willing to go down alleyways that you weren't planning on going down. Mm. Right. Mm. So I really get mm. a lot from that, from just exposing mm. myself to ideas from people who and also Jordan Peterson, I must say. Jordan Jord Peterson's okay. work, uh, podcast. Yeah, I haven't heard that one. Okay, Professor Jordan Peterson, you know, he's like recently gotten very popular. He's a psychologist from yeah, Canada. Yeah, that's right. It is him. Yeah. Um, and what I like about his um, his work and his podcast is that uh, he's actually, in some ways, he's countering some of the very popular narratives, but he's doing it in a very uh, nuanced way. Um, so he'll talk about things like the importance of... Uh, developing yourself right like there's this amazing quote he has in his book 12 rules for life he says make yourself so strong right 
like strengthen yourself from within such that you are the most dependable person at your own father's funeral and he'll say things like that and you're like mm. wow you know that's that's strong <laughs> you know and and i think at the moment there's plenty of voices telling us to be victims and to uh protest and to be upset mm. about what white people have done to us and the colonialists have done to us and you know everyone else has done to us and although you know that does have its place and maybe you know some of those things need to be addressed i think it's much more empowering when somebody says to you strengthen yourself because life is tough and that's one mm. of his key messages so i'm really benefiting I'd like to benefit from different people, you know, so um, even if I don't agree with everything that they say. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so those are two podcasts. Um, into. Fi final one, then. What What is an ayat of the Quran that is inspiring you right now? Because when we ask people, what's your favorite ayat? I think that's really disingenuous because disingenuous because you're asking to pluck something out of perfection. But is there something that is giving you strength right right now that you'd like to share? There isn't a one verse of the Quran that is coming to mind as, you know, the most inspiring. But what, what I tend to do is I will open up the Quran, you know, often and just read whatever, whichever surah I open up to. And I'll usually find something there, mm. you know, that is relevant mm. and important for me there and then. Um, yeah, so so that's that's really... That's really how, how I'm relating to the Quran at the moment. MashaAllah, thank you. Sister Fatima, it's been such an honor to have this chat finally. Exactly. And we had a little bit of cake before we came on. And you've had, oh, you've got cold tea there, but we'll make you some more. And um, we pray for you to continue on your path and to continue enlightening and sharing with others. May Allah bless you and your family. And Jazakallah uh, That's it. That's all for today. And see you next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.